Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And for those of you who don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will come down and give you a Bible. As this is the first service of the New Year's, we're starting the first service, 2006, we see that Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, is starting his public ministry. Um, we also are getting to see his credentials laid out in a sense. He starts out uh, with the Father speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see that the Holy Spirit alights on him. And we also see that Luke is tracing his lineage back to the first man, Adam. Now, the interesting thing is we keep going back to Genesis and we keep going back to Adam. That's our foundation, people. As much as the secular world tries to put pressure on us to make us believe that it's a fairy tale, Genesis is, is literal and Adam was the first man. Because how would we need redemption from a savior if we don't know the original reason why we needed redemption? And that's because of sin, because of the first disobedience of our federal parents. So is another thing that I want you to, um, if you have taking notes, there's a website called uh, AnswersInGenesis.org. AnswersInGenesis.org. It's all lowercase. And this is a website where you see scientifically, the largely Christian scientific community, botanists, uh, physicists, chemists, biologists, all these like hundreds of scientists who agree that God had to create everything. It couldn't happen by evolution. And of course, they're largely shunned by the secular world. But it's a really neat website to log on to because you really get a, they show you scientifically how it had to happen through a creator and not through evolution. So in this passage, you see on the one hand, Jesus is the son of God. And on the other hand, Jesus is the son of man. Christian apologist Max Herrera said, when dealing with Jesus, in order to fully understand who he was and the circumstances surrounding him, you have to postulate any question that you have about Jesus from two different angles. And this actually helped me a lot. One is God and one is man. So could Jesus show love and emotion? Well, that's an easy one because we know that as God, yes, he could. Because we read about the, the emotions of God even in the Old Testament. And also as man, yes, he could. Because God made man in his image, right? So he has the emotions that go with it. Then could Jesus be wounded, mortally wounded, and ultimately die? Well, as God, no, but as man, yes. And we saw that that happened at the cross. Was Jesus omnipresent? Could he be all places at once? As God, yes, but as man, no. He chose to take the form of a man and be confined to that vessel, so to speak, for his, for his earthly life. And could Jesus die a substitutionary death on the cross efficiently wiping away the sins of mankind. As man, absolutely not. No man could do that. But as God, absolutely yes. And we see he was that perfect sacrifice and died for our sins. So this actually kind of helps clear up any misconceptions that we have about Jesus, because it can be confusing sometimes. And this is where the cults go wrong, too. They don't fully understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And understanding that both helps to help us understand who Jesus is. Okay, jumping in, uh, verse 21. It says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. So, you see that Jesus is getting baptized. Now, you have to ask yourself, I don't, you know, why would he get baptized? If you look at verse, or chapter 3 of Luke, in verse 3, it says that John's baptism was a baptism for the repentance of the remission of sins. So wait a minute, do we have a problem here? As a matter of fact, to add more on to that, 
Uh, in Matthew 3, a parallel uh, gospel, parallel verses, you see that John was even reluctant to baptize Jesus. He goes, you come to be baptized by me, I should be getting baptized by you. But he was obedient to the Lord, and he baptized him. So what are some of the reasons why Jesus may have been baptized? Well, obviously it was not for the remission of sins because Jesus had no sin. But a few things about this is we see that Jesus filled the role of a priest. And we talked a few services back of him being a prophet, priest, and king. Now, the priests, the interesting thing about the priests is they started their ministry at about 30 years old. And we're going to see that in verse 23, that Jesus started his ministry at about 30 years old. Uh, and you can find that in Numbers 4. The Old Testament shows us uh, it really helps to unlock the keys to the New Testament. And the priests, according to Exodus 30, had to have their hands and feet washed before they started any type of uh, religious service. Otherwise, they would die. It was very serious. So it could have been to fulfill the role of the priest. That's one possibility. It could have been symbolic of a milestone of him starting his ministry. It also could have been symbolic of his death, burial, and resurrection. Because Jesus spoke very frequently to his disciples. I have to go to the cross. I will be delivered unto sinful men. I have to die and I will come again. I will rise again. He told them that if you read the Gospels over and over and over again. Because he wanted them to understand that. So here, even when we get baptized, we are identifying with Jesus. Going into the water, the death, burial, being totally immersed. And coming out of the water, the resurrection. So we identify with Christ. Right? And uh, also through communion, we identify with Christ by remembering his sacrifice. Uh, I think one of the best reasons is that Jesus, again, identified with us as sinners. Now, but we also identify with Jesus. But what came first? He identified with us, right? The first John 4.19 says that we love Jesus because he first loved us. See, that's kind of like the way we are as humans. We're kind of, you know, we meet a stranger and... We, we kind of don't warm up to them right away unless they give us a smile or they want to do something for us or they say something nice or they have a common interest. That's the way we are as humans. So Jesus took the olive branch, so to, so to speak, and, and handed it to us, and he loved us first by you know, his sacrifice, and then we in turn love him. I'm just going to read a few scriptures about how Jesus fills this role as a priest and how he identifies with us. Turn to Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. He says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So he makes propitiation, which means basically that Sin demands judgment. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. We're all destined for hell. But there has to be judgment for sin, and our punishment is eternal punishment. Jesus made the propitiation for that sin by basically uh, for dying on the cross. It was a conciliating and appeasing of God's uh, righteous judgment. And also it says that he himself has suffered being tempted and is able to aid those who are being tempted. The word tempted in the Greek is contextual. It could mean tempted or it could mean tested. Either way, it fits. To tempt, to be drawn away by your own desires, to somebody to get you to do something wrong. Jesus was tempted. We're going to read that uh, next Sunday, the temptations in the wilderness. Of course, he passed all those tests. But he was also tested. 
the pressure of, of, of spiritual pressure or pressure from people here to do the wrong thing, to go away from God's plan. Jesus passed all those tests, too. So he, he can assimilate, he can understand who we are because he's been through it. And then Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So you see that again. Jesus, people could say, well, God doesn't understand. Well, God does understand because he became a man. He went through all the things that we do and worse. He went to the cross, suffered an excruciating death. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that word in the Greek, to know, Jesus had no familiarity with sin based on experience. That's what it means. Jesus had no familiarity. He did not know sin based on experience. And then he became sin for us at the cross. So you see that Jesus identifies with us in all ways, in all points, he identifies. Now, Jesus, again, it was an example to us in all things. Here we see that he was baptized and he prayed and heaven was opened. So, you know, that's the biggest stumbling block sometimes to non-believers, how Christians act. We, we fall short a lot as Christians. You know, we're supposed to be an example to the rest of the world. And sometimes we get caught up in ourselves we get caught up in the things that the world gets caught up in, and sometimes we kind of blow our witness. Uh, it happens a lot. People come and say, well, what about all those people who go to church on Sunday and, and act like devils of the rest of the week? I actually had somebody say that to me last week. And you, you have to try to steer them to their personal relationship with God. God's not going to give somebody a pass because they saw some hypocrite doing something wrong. Now, I have no doubt in my life or no doubt in my mind that in my life somebody said, well, I don't want to become a Christian because Joe DeProsimo is a hypocrite. I mean, we can all look at our lives and see where we've fallen short to, to, um, to portray that example. But Jesus didn't. He was perfect. I think about uh, when I go on patrol, we have police uh, in the police cars. We have cameras in the windshield, right behind the windshield. And then we, when we get out and we make a stop, I'm telling you all our police secrets. <laughs> but when we get out and make a stop, we actually have a little mic pack that records our conversations. And it's actually very good. It protects the, the citizen, but it really helps to protect the police officers. Because nowadays, people make all kinds of allegations to get out of trouble. So there's no question about it. There's a video and there's an audio recording of it. But what if there was a celestial camera? And there is a celestial camera. It's God's eye. He sees everything. But what if God kept a bunch of files of videotapes of everything we did in our lives? And, you know, what, if, what, if, what about me? Would, would I be ashamed to see if God said, okay, now I'm going to play three, two, one, bam. On this screen, there's some things in my life that you guys don't know about. Would I be ashamed? Would I be embarrassed? And that's what we, what we have to think about. And unfortunately, a lot of times in our jobs or, of course, away from church people, we fall short. We act like different people. And we shouldn't do that. That's hypocrisy. So Jesus set the standard, and uh, nobody led that perfect, sinless life except for Jesus. It's a tall order to fill, but that's what we have to shoot for. Verse 22, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. You see the Trinity here at work. You see the, F the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to digress a little bit because... Um, I want to talk about 
the essence of God. We spoke a few services back about the divine nature of Jesus, why Jesus is God. Now, there are some cults that teach that he's not. And actually, that, those cults are a uh, modern re- revitalizing of a 4th century heresy. If you look it up in your encyclopedia, it was, it's called Arianism. There's a guy named Arius who started that, her- that heresy in the 4th century, that Jesus wasn't God. But Jesus is God, and we, we did cover a lot about that. But also the Trinity. There's people out there at work who have a problem with the Trinity, and they don't believe in the Trinity. But starting in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know, in the beginning, God. That word for God in the Hebrew is Elohim. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, anything with an I-M at the end denotes plurality. So God is speaking about himself. He's having, remember, Moses wrote the first five books, inspired by God. Why is Moses writing, in the beginning, God, plural, created the heavens and the earth? It kind of gives us a glimpse of who God is. And in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Who is he talking to? He's not talking to the angels, because he created the angels. He's not saying, I'm going to make man as a hybrid between God and my creation, because we don't have any of those characteristics of the angels. Uh, And we talked about angels before, and and Gary Stravel talked extensively about angels. God is speaking to himself. He manifests himself in three persons. Um, One other thing, Deuteronomy 6, if you're taking notes, there's um, the the prayer. A lot of Jewish people have, it's called the Shema. They have it on the door. If you look at their doorposts, it's a little scroll in a a box, and it's kind of tilted on their door. I'm sure a lot of you have seen them. And it's, it's from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Do you know that word for one in the Hebrew is echad? It means a compound unity. It actually means many into one. Again, all throughout the Old Testament, you're seeing a picture of God that um, is revealed in the New Testament. There's actually another word for one, and it, it means solitary one in the Hebrew. It's called yochid, but it was never used. Moses did not use that. It's like if you, if you remember going back to math class, uh, remember the absolute sets? They were like brackets, but they were kind of like square. And it's now you don't want to talk about math. <laughs> Yochid is, is absolutely one. And that's not the word that's used for God. So it's very important to look at that. Um, actually, I have some papers here that uh, some of you can come up and check out at the service because there's so many to read. This shows 75 references alone in the New Testament to where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is at the same time. A few verses, uh, Matthew 12:18, Luke 1:35, John 15:26, Acts 5:31, Romans 1:1 1, 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 7:39 through 40, Ephesians 3:14 through 16, 1 Thessalonians 5:18 through 19. 1 Peter 1, 2, and 1 John 4, 13 through 14. And you also see references in the Old Testament. Again, more than, more than what we just spoke of. Proverbs 34 speaks about God and his son. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, it speaks about the father and his spirit. Isaiah 48, 16, the Lord God, his spirit, and the Messiah. And Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God the Messiah, and the Lord, God the Father. So you see that there's a lot of references to 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's very, very important doctrinally, doctrinally to understand why we believe what we believe. But, um, and again, as for the Holy Spirit, we spoke about the deity of Christ, we spoke about the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is never spoken as an it. When speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Bible doesn't say it, it says he. There's a personal pronoun used. And what that shows is he is a person. He's not an it, right? Uh, so the Holy Spirit can be can teach, the Bible says. He can be lied to. He can be grieved. He can comfort. He can guide. And he can convict, of, convict us of sin. And it's really not, you know, we, we have a little struggle sometimes with the whole Trinity thing, but it's really not that hard to understand because as humans, what are we? We're three in one. We're, we're spirit, we're body, and we're soul. And when we die, those get separated. But why? Because of sin. So we are three in one. We, we work together. Um, if you look at water, H2O, water can manifest itself as a gas, a liquid, or a solid. And in certain atmospheric temperatures and pressures, you can have H2O manifest itself in a body of water with a piece of ice floating and vapor coming off of it. So, you know, God left his signature all over creation. Hopefully that kind of nailed it down for you. Uh, and, you know, there's no reason why we have to believe as Christians that we have to understand everything about the scripture. If you ask me, sometimes you'll ask me a question afterwards and I'll say, I don't know that. I'll have to look it up. If we knew everything about God and we could outthink God and we knew, you know, we would, we would be God and he wouldn't be. So there's going to be things about God that we're not going to fully understand yet. Okay, and then continuing on, God says, um, there's a voice from heaven. It says to Jesus, he says, you are my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. Now, the English doesn't translate that well. The Greek grammatical text shows that that's a continuous action. The father is constantly pleased with the son. The father has always been pleased with the son before the son became a man while he was still with the father. So this is a continuous action. I am continually pleased with you. It's an ongoing thing. Okay, okay. now we're going to get into the, uh, the genealogy or bloodline or family tree, however you want to look at it. Now, I, I kind of ask myself, how do I get excited about genealogy? <laughs> and how do I get you excited about genealogy? Even harder. Well, I asked that question to somebody, I won't say who it was, and they said, ah, just skip it. <laughs> I get good advice, don't I? Where do we get into the book of Numbers? Has anybody read that? It's mostly about Numbers. I hope we get raptured before then. <laughs> but I do want us to see that every detail in the Bible is important. So we're going to go, we're going to have fun with a little bit of genealogy here, believe it or not. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 5. There's a genealogy here starting with Adam down to Seth and his sons all the way to Noah. And I'm, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read the names. And then I'm going to tell you what the names mean in Hebrew. Okay, it's Adam begot Seth, Seth begot Enosh, Enosh begot Canaan, verse 9, verse 12, Canaan begot Mahalalel. I had to practice that. Say that three times fast. Verse 15, Mahalalel begot Jared, and Jared begot Enoch, in verse 18. Verse 21, Enoch begot Methuselah. Verse 25, Methuselah begot Lamech. Verse 28, Lamech begot, I'm sorry, 29, he begot Noah. Okay, so a bunch of names. So what? What does that mean? Well, actually, now I'm going to read the names in Hebrew, and we're going to kind of put a sentence together. Adam. So we'll start with Adam means man. Okay? So Adam 
Seth appointed Enosh, mortal, Cain, and sorrow. Imagine being named sorrow. I hate that name. <laughs> um, what was your mom thinking when she had you? But anyway, uh, it says man appointed mortal sorrow, period. Now, isn't that the truth? Man, because of his sin, appointed mortal sorrow. It was a mortal blow to us to sin and rebel against God. And then the sin separates us from God. We have to die. The next, the next words are Mahalalel, the blessed God, Jared, shall come down, Enoch, teaching. The blessed God shall come down, teaching. That's a picture of Jesus Christ. That was the answer to our problem. Jesus came down, teaching, period. Methuselah, his death shall bring Lamech, the despairing Noah, rest. His death shall bring the despairing rest. Who's the despairing? All of us that have sinned. Jesus' death shall bring the despairing rest. Isn't that awesome? So way back in the Old Testament, the Bible tells a story about redemption. So see, you could have fun with genealogy after all. Uh, actually, I think, think that was Chuck Missler who I learned that from. You know, Bible, teacher, Bible teachers steal material from each other all the time. But I try to give people credit for it. Okay. Why is genealogy so important? Well, first of all, a lot of the Messianic prophecies uh, had to deal with bloodline alone. So I just rattle off a few of these. Genesis 12:3, the Messiah had to be a descendant of Abraham. Genesis 17:9, he had to be a descendant of Isaac. Numbers 24:17, a descendant of Jacob. Genesis 49:10, he had to be a descendant of Judah. Isaiah 9:7, he had to be a descendant of David. And uh, Isaiah 11:1 1 and 10, the Messiah had to be a descendant of Jesse. So we see several prophecies that have to do with genealogy alone. So that is important. Now remember. Luke's primary audience is a Greek audience. They're thinking people. They're steeped in Greek mythology. I don't know how the two kind of go together. But um, he kind of shows the difference between the Greek God system, which is very confusing, and which a lot of the Greeks over time got very disenfranchised with, and the, the true story of how God became a man. He kind of sets them apart. Now, I'm going to go a little bit into Greek mythology. I, I looked it up. I probably spent far too much time looking at it. But um, Greek mythology is very confusing. First, you have your original gods. They were the Titans, right? And then you had your Olympians. These were gods who overthrew the original gods. Then you have your creatures. You have the Cyclops, the one-eyed monster. Remember those old Sinbad movies? <laughs> he, would, he would fight those animated clay uh, creatures with the sword. That was kind of cool. When I was a kid, I really loved, looked forward to that. But it's kind of weird. Um, you, have your, you have your giants. Well, they were giant. Your sirens were half women, half bird. Uh, sure, you can get a few jokes out of that one. The, the centaurs were half man, half horse. The gorgons were female monsters with snake-like hair, Medusa. There's another movie called The Clash of the Titans. You saw all those monsters, right? Um, the Pegasus was the flying horse. And that's not even the half of it. I mean, I could go here for, you know, I just kind of took the gist of it. But least in numbers and least powerful, you have the, the humans. We were the, again, assuming that this Greek mythology is true, we are the bottom of the food chain, so to speak. Now, with all the interbreeding of the aforementioned and all the, the wars and everything that was going on, how is it that the only thing that's left is undiluted humans? So obviously, Greek mythology doesn't even make any sense there. So just to give you a little history about that. But Dr. Luke shows a, a, a situation here where he shows the, the, the genealogy of a man, you know, 
God created Adam. And then you see all these people from Adam, this, this, this line of people. And then somewhere in human history, God interrupts that line of mankind. And he comes down and he comes down into the form of a man at a certain point of time. He dies for the sins of the people and then he's resurrected. Now, what that shows is what Luke is showing here is that there's a preordained nexus, a meeting with a line of men and God for the sole purpose of human redemption. That was the, the only purpose, you know, that Jesus had to come and die for our sins. Now, it's funny because people say when you really understand the redemption process, you, you can't say that, well, gee, um, I just have to be a good person and I could get to heaven. That's not how it works, because then why did Jesus die? He wasted his time here. You know, and teachings were good. The miracles were good. But the most important thing that Jesus did was to die for our sins. Okay. So if we go into the first chapter of Matthew, again, which is a parallel chapter of Luke 3, the genealogy. You don't have to go there because there's a lot to it. You see in Matthew's gospel, you see that there's a bloodline from Abraham down to King David down to Joseph. Right. Mary and Joseph. Joseph had adoptive, adoptive rights to Jesus, but there was no physical, physical connection between Joseph and Jesus. Uh, the problem with Joseph's line is that in Matthew 1.12, there's an individual there called Jeconiah or Coniah or in the Old Testament, Jehoiachin. Sometimes people had different names that meant the same thing. But he was a wicked king, so wicked that in Jeremiah 22, God pronounced a curse on his bloodline and said that none of Kaniah's descendants could sit on the throne. So obviously he couldn't be the Messiah. Now in Luke's gospel, he takes the bloodline from Adam, takes it down again to Abraham, to King David, but bypasses the curse, the, the curse on Jeconiah, because in Matthew, I hope I'm not confusing you, in Matthew, the bloodline goes from King David to Solomon and all the way down to Jeconiah. But in Luke's uh, gospel, the bloodline goes from King David to Nathan, his other son, all the way down to Heli, right? But if you study uh, Matthew and Luke, you see that the bloodlines are, are two different people. Matthew's bloodline and Luke's bloodline talk about two separate people. So then why do they both go back to Joseph? doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Well, the son of Heli, the term the son of Heli could also have meant the son-in-law of Heli. This is where we're getting somewhere. Uh, it, it, was, it, would, it would have been the same word, the same phrase used, which would have been uh, Joseph was Heli's son-in-law. We also see that Luke mentions only males in this bloodline, so Mary wouldn't be here anyway. So it stands to reason that Luke's genealogy traces Seth, or I'm sorry, um, Adam, all the way down to Heli, to Mary, to physical, uh, you know, giving birth to Jesus. So thereby the curse is removed. So something kind of deep there in Scripture that is interesting to know. But uh, a few things on genealogy. The family histories. If somebody claimed to be the Messiah at those times, what would happen is all your family trees of the Jewish people, all the genealogies would be kept on these big scrolls. They would be rolled up. They would be put in containers and they would be kept in the temple. Okay, the, the temple. It would be like the hall of records, so to speak. That would be like the, the municipal center, the administration center. All, of, all those records would be there. Now, Jesus, when he came, his biggest critics were the hypocritical established religious system. Now, don't you think that they went when Jesus made all these claims and they found out who his parents were? Don't you think that they went to the Hall of Records and checked this stuff out? But nobody accused him of being a fraud. That's one thing they never accused him of. They actually had to bring false witnesses to, uh, to accuse him. 
Okay? But he never, they never accused him of sin, and they never accused him of being a fraud. As a matter of fact, let's just take the Bible aside, look at the writings of Josephus, look at the writings of the Roman historians, Tacitus, Longinus, all these different men who clearly were not Christians, and nobody accused Jesus of being a fraud or having any sin. Jesus was perfect. So you could, you could take that to the bank, so to speak. But what you have here is even if you go outside the Bible, or if you go to anybody in history from then till now through the beginning of mankind, you can see problems with people's history. Now, I'm not asking you to look, but if you checked me out deep enough, you could find some problems in my past. And I, I bet to say that anybody here would have the same problems. We all have skeletons in our closets, so to speak. But the beautiful thing is that, that the Lord forgives us, that we, have, we can be free from all the sins we've committed by coming to the cross. But there's a few people here through, through the years who have had, even founders of religions, who have had major problems and skeletons in their past that they've actually um, led people away from the truth and, and brought them to these new religions, so to speak. Uh, one person is C.T. Russell. He was the founder of the Jehovah Witnesses. He started the, he revitalized in the 1800s the, the false doctrine of Arianism, that Jesus wasn't God. This was a man who was continually exposed, if you check out history, from 1912 through 1916 by the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, which was sort of like our daily news. And he actually uh, failed two uh, lawsuits in Brooklyn court that further exposed him as a fraud. However, millions of people today follow this man and this doctrine that he started. It's like time heals all wounds. The further you go forward in time, people who have done some pretty wicked things, you don't remember it anymore. Another one is Muhammad. In the 7th century, at the, at the tender age of 14 years old, he started his own religion. He got these so-called visions, and uh, he, he drew people away from uh, Judaism and from Christianity and brought them into Islam. Now... This guy was known for his brutality in warfare, polygamy, and taking prepubescent girls as wives. Now, I don't say something this controversial without qualifying it. According to the Hadith, which is Islamic Collected Traditions, Sahih Bukhari, Volume 7, Sunan Abu Dawood, Book 41, it says, At the age of 53, Muhammad took Aisha, then nine years old, married her, and consummated the marriage. Now, that's pretty heavy stuff, people. In today's society, if he lived here, he'd be a Megan's Law violator. But yet he's led so many people away from the truth to follow him. Now, we can't sit here and criticize this, these things and, and uh, you know, look at these people who are involved in these, these situations and not love them and not feel and not pray for them. And I just say this for the record after hitting, you know, this was a pretty heavy thing to, to let out here, you know. It's going to be on record. But for the record also, my wife and I, uh, a few years back, took in a young Muslim girl. She was 19 years old. She was pregnant. She was from Iran. And she felt trapped. She was in a really bad situation. We met her through a friend, and uh, we prayed about it, and we took her in. She was going to have an abortion because she felt that her circumstances, she had no money, she had nothing. Her family deserted her. It's a long story. But we took her in for about a year. We loved her. We treated her like a daughter. We we didn't ask her for any money, and um, you know that she had that baby. And she credits us for her son today, who's alive. He's five years old now. Uh, but again, I, I told her, I won't say the name, but I said, listen, don't turn your back on Jesus. What you saw in this household, the love you were shown, was not from us. <laughs> you know, human nature, it's so, you so willingly want to take that. Oh, you guys are so great. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm kind of great, aren't I? 
Yeah. You're so loving. Yeah, I am kind of loving. But you, gotta rege- you can't do that, you know? And I told her, I said, listen, don't turn your back on Jesus Christ. It's because of him that you're here and that your son is born. It's not because of me or my wife. So these people are in dead-end religions. They're in cults. But you have to love them, pray for them. And if the Lord leaves you, leads you, love them in some way, some physical way. Okay. Verse 24 says this. So we, we see that um, you have Jesus, you have Heli, you have, um, verse 24 says, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai. I had to practice those names. Amos and Nahum. Sounds familiar. It's not the prophets that you're thinking about. They're, it's too close to uh, the first century. This would have been an anachronism. Um, Amos preceded Nahum, and both of them preceded Zerubbabel, which we're going to find out later. So those aren't the prophets. Verse 26 and 27, it says, The son of Math, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Semei, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. So what you have here is this Zerubbabel guy who's a historical biblical character. You could read about him in Nehemiah 7, Ezra 3, and Zechariah 4. He's the one who led the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and restore worship from the Persian uh, domination, the Medo-Persian domination. Verse 28, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kassam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Josie, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim. So now we're getting somewhere. Uh, now we're starting to see that this, he, he's starting to fall into the line of David. And verse 31 through 32, the son of Melia, the son of Menan, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashan. And um, again, we talked about Isaiah 11, 1 and 10, that the Messiah had to come from the root from Jesse, the root out of Jesse. And uh, we also see Boaz married Ruth, and you can find that in the book of Ruth. 33 and 34, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. Isaac was the son of the promise. Uh, Jacob's name later became Israel. He was the father of the 12 tribes that scattered out and, and made Israel. And Judah was from the line of the Messiah. 35, the son of Surug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. Noah, we recognize that name, right? He built a big boat. Uh, Verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan. Methuselah, something notable about him, he lived to be 969 years old, the oldest person to live. And 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So what we see here is we see Jesus' credentials laid out, and Luke does a great job. Luke shows, he goes back and forth, he shows that Jesus is the Son of God, 
and he also shows that Jesus is the Son of Man. But I want to point out something in verse 38. We, there's a lot of names here. Noah, everybody, the kids, ask the kids, they all know who Noah is. King David, uh, Adam, the first man. But what about this person in verse 38, God? Can you really say, I know him? Think about that. Is, are you comfortable in your heart saying, I know him? I know God. I can say that. By believing in Jesus Christ, you can know God. If you're not 100% sure that you know God, we're going to give you an opportunity at the close of the service to know who God is. So it's very easy to know. The Bible spells it out. God loves us. This is a great story of redemption through Jesus Christ. And uh, at the end of the service, which is going to be in a few minutes, I'm going to give you that opportunity.